Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello and welcome to the Top in Tech podcast from Global Council. This is our monthly digest of all that is happening in UK and EU technology policy. My name is Conan Darcy. I am the Senior Practice Lead for Tech, Media and Telecoms at Global Council, and I have the privilege to be your regular host on this monthly podcast. The format of the podcast is pretty simple. We pick the top three issues and developments of the past month and look at why they are important and what they will mean for the future of EU and UK tech policy moving forward. We then conclude on a top series of issues that you should have on your radar, in your calendars and your schedulers for the month ahead. For today's podcast, I am delighted to be joined by two highly esteemed colleagues. First, I have Max von Thun. Max works across both UK and EU tech policy. He's a specialist in a number of areas, including competition policy, which is an area that we will explore later today. I'm also delighted to be joined by Jack Keevil. Uh, Jack is based in our Brussels office. He has a decade's worth of experience in legislative policy in Brussels, and he'll bring that to our conversation today when we're exploring what is happening in the weeds of EU tech policy. So today, the three issues are as follows. The first, the future of ad regulation. The European Commission is publishing today its proposal to regulate political advertising online. We will explore with Max and Jack is this going to be an ambitious proposal or are we expecting something of a damp squib? Secondly, the Web Summit in Lisbon is back, or at least it was back. It took place earlier this month. Is it a genuine ground for optimism of EU tech or is it more noise than substance? Finally, MEPs voted on the Digital Markets Act this week. While it may sound a little technocratic and dull to your average listener, it could actually change some fundamentals in how you interact with tech and how you use and see what is on your smartphone. So we'll jump into those uh, three issues throughout the uh, the podcast. Just to start with, uh, we'll focus on ad regulation. So Jack, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the commission is uh, publishing its uh, proposals this week, perhaps even while we, while we speak. Um, can you give us just a little bit of context here? Um, this proposal obviously hasn't come totally out of the blue. What is the background here? Um, and why have we reached this point that the Commission wants to actually legislate? Well, to understand where this is coming from, we have to go back into what now seems a bit like ancient history to a time when the United Kingdom was working out how exactly it was going to leave the European Union. Um, and uh, when Donald Trump had still, was still relatively fresh in, in the White House in the US, and it emerged that a company called Cambridge Analytica um, had obtained and misused a lot, vast amounts of data about Facebook users in order to kind of sway the, sway the campaigns in, in, in both, um, both votes. Um, this was followed by a patchwork of measures taken by social media platforms, um, all doing slightly different things. Um, ahead of the European elections in 2019. Um, so we had this kind of picture of different conditions, different platforms in different countries. And this um, 
in no way solved the problems. In fact, there was these, this kind of, again, patchwork was quite heavily criticized by uh, various groups, civil society actors, other smaller political parties um, who complained that it made their life more difficult. So self-regulation was not the way to go, as the commission decided. Um, so they had to do something. But then it took some time to work out how to tackle the different legs of the problem, whether it's data abuse, whether it's who's paying, um, and what the content actually is. And these were to be, it took, took, it took a while for the European Commission to decide how to split these different measures up in different packages. So I suppose the, the, the approach the Commission has taken here is, is, is relatively typical for how it's approached digital policy over the last five years or so. If we look at headline measures like the Digital Services Act, Originally, the Commission's preference was to allow platforms to better regulate the content online, and only once these uh, the, these self-regulatory options were exhausted over time has the Commission looked to move towards uh, harder, firmer legislative measures. So, uh, today's announcement is is consistent with that. Um, you mentioned a few elements there. Jack, about what might be part of uh, such proposals. Can you just clarify for listeners what exactly is the European Commission proposing? Fundamentally, the political ads proposal will consist of transparency measures. Um, it'll be obligations for tech companies and political parties that are campaigning to disclose information um, about the ads that they're running. That's And that will be things like you know, how much money is being paid, by whom, where they're located, and how, this, uh, how the ads are going to be targeted. Um, there's also, we're also expecting restrictions on the use of sensitive data. That means um, things pertaining to characteristics such as racial or origin, uh, political preferences, of course, um, sexual orientation, and, and so on. So we're expecting restrictions on how that data is used for targeting advertising. Um, obviously, then you also have to def define a targeted ad, which is quite an interesting question. Um, and a quite difficult one because one person's political ad would be another statement of fact. Um, and this is very pertinent in, in countries where there are authoritarian regimes. Um, some might argue those even exist within the European Union. Um, but there's also then global ramifications if you're talking about the kind of uh, sort of Brussels effect that EU tech regulation tends to have. So from what you're saying there it's mostly transparency but there might be some targeted uh, bans on what platforms can actually offer uh, political parties and other campaign groups that are looking uh, to advertise to users so as you said in political preference so i having worked uh, for liberal democrat politicians in the past companies wouldn't be able to know that if they were going to target a political ad at me ahead of a, an election campaign but i mean Given that you said that some companies have acted, so if we think Twitter, Twitch, TikTok, all of these companies have banned political ads totally, uh, does this not sort of feel a little bit timid then if the private sector has already gone much further than the proposals that the Commission themselves are coming out with? Yes and no, I would say. I mean, so I think there's the obvious first points, and we can perhaps talk about it later, is, is the first question as to how effective the tech the tech companies um, policies are you know are they just kind of there as a nice kind of uh, sort of legal boilerplates um, but ultimately they have no 
no no no real world impacts. Um, but I mean, more generally, I think the the commission's idea is that sunlight is the best disinfectant, and especially when it comes to the kind of questions of foreign interference in European elections. Um, uh, so that's you know they the the idea would then be that if it's clear that a certain ad is funded by a Russian-backed organization, um, this would be clear and therefore would discredit the advertising and, and so it'd be less effective thereby saving European democracy or something along these lines. Um, but obviously this has its limits. There's the old saying that you know a lie travels around the world before the truth has even tied up its shoelaces. So the, you know, the, the question as to whether um, the transparency would stop that, I think is still very much an open one. And of course, closing every loophole is also difficult. There's always going to be ways you can find to work around it. Um, that said, there are some who would hope that the proposal will actually be a de facto ban on micro-targeting. They're claiming or they're hoping that if you require enough transparency, if you require enough uh, disclosure of information, it will actually be impossible to do so. And so therefore you won't be able to micro-target, you won't be able to you won't be able to to kind of you know target these kind of small uh, groups that then fragments the sort of information landscape in a in, in an electoral campaign. Um, so it, so so in that sense, it's actually it could be quite a significant step. We'll see whether that whether it actually pans out that way again is, is a question because there's all these ways of working around uh, these kind of rules. We'd seen, for example. I mean, what, it, does, it does nothing about uh, the question of paid influences online. So where, for example, if I, as a radical green, were to offer millions of dollars to Kim Kardashian to talk about bicycle infrastructure, um, that would be very clearly a political advertisement in, in some sense, but would likely not be tackled by this proposal. Great. So th thankfully for enthusiasts of cycling king kardashian could still be your advocate but i mean to take that away i suppose in some ways we know that the the vast majority of the advertising market and where of, often will have most impact lies with facebook and google and they have not banned political advertising so in some sense these proposals speak to to those companies uh, more so than those companies that have uh, banned political advertising uh, and it could have a, a material effect there. I suppose the second point, Jack, to note there is that this isn't the end of the story. It goes to the uh, European Parliament and the Council. The European Parliament in particular could end up toughening the proposal. So we may see uh, a more restrictive piece of legislation coming out than what the Commission proposed uh, in the first place. So, uh, Max, uh, welcome to the conversation. Uh, can you give us a bit of a, a UK perspective here? Because obviously, this isn't an issue only seen within uh, the European Union. Uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, linked to Brexit uh, and the referendum is very much a UK story um, at its heart. So what's been happening on the other side of the English Channel? So I think given your um, suggestion, Conan, earlier that the EU proposals uh, were rather timid, I think you'll be uh, heavily disappointed by what the UK is doing. Uh, I mean, so they are moving forward with measures in this space. Um, and their plan is essentially to introduce uh, imprints for political advertising online. What that essentially would do is it would apply existing rules that apply to uh, print advertising requiring um, 
kind of advertisers to explain uh, who's behind the ad and sort of anyone they are advertising on behalf of. Uh, those would now be applied to, to political advertisements online, um, and those measures are currently in a in a, in a bill called the the elections bill, which is currently going through Parliament. Um, but I think, you know, as as I was implying, it's fair to say they're a lot less ambitious than what the EU is doing. Um, I mean, they're essentially doing kind of the bare minimum of just providing very basic transparency on who's behind an ad, but not the sort of transparency we're expecting the Commission to propose around. Uh, who has paid for an ad or sort of who they're targeting and the types of uh, characteristics they're using to targeting and certainly no kind of restrictions on, on how targeting works. So, um, yeah, I think this is, as I mentioned, just quite a kind of straightforward application of the existing rules for, for kind of analog political advertising to the digital sphere. So it'd be sort of the equivalent of when you get a party political broadcast that says this uh, the following broadcast is on behalf of the Labour Party or Conservatives and so on. It'll be interesting as an aside to see how that is applied to different forms of uh, social media, written, video, text and so on, uh, and how you can neatly fit those in, particularly if it's not a sort of two or three minute uh, video like broadcasts. Um, moving on from that, though, so if we're going in the sort of ranks of ambition, so some private sector companies have banned political ads. The European Commission wants to shine the light of transparency onto ads and you know, tinker with how you can target some of them. The UK is at probably the bottom of this league table here in giving some basic disclosure requirements uh, for those who are launching political ads. Why is the UK at the bottom of this league table? Is there a political motivation perhaps linked to the original Cambridge Analytica scandal that explains the dynamics here? So I think there are a couple of things going on here. Um, I mean, firstly, in terms of why they're doing anything at all, which I think is a, is a fair question. Uh, you know, as you and, and Jack mentioned, targeted advertising, particularly when it comes to elections and, and referenda, uh, has been a kind of hot topic over the past few years, particularly because of Brexit, but also because of the Trump campaign. Uh, and, you know, it, it, therefore, it's been kind of a, a, a topic of debate in the UK. And so that's created kind of public pressure for something to be done uh, in that area. And then I think on top of that, we've seen pressure from um, organizations like the Electoral Commission, which is the kind of official body in charge of making sure elections take place uh, fairly and enforcing those rules. And um, the Commission on Standards of, of Public uh, Committee, sorry, for Standards in Public Life, which advises the government on kind of uh, ethical standards uh, in, in sort of British democracy. They've both um, kind of published reports and, and, and recommendations calling on the government to do more to, to beef up how political advertising uh, is regulated because of concerns around uh, how, how it affected the outcomes of, again, the Brexit referendum, as well as uh, elections since then in the UK in 2017 and, and 2019. Um, so I think that's why we've seen the government do something. But I think as for why... They've done less than others, uh, like the European Commission. I think a big part of that is that the current Conservative government, you know, particularly the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, um, are strongly associated with the Vote Leave campaign, which is where I think the kind of bulk of the accusations about targeted advertising and, and potentially inappropriate targeted advertising were, were directed. Um, and you know, even since the referendum, there's been a kind of ongoing saga around it. You know, Vote Leave were fined for um, overspending, which with most of that money money being used for advertising. There were you know formal investigations into Cambridge Analytica that Jack mentioned, 
there was a, a, a report on kind of Russian interference in elections, which was uh, held back for kind of many months without much of an explanation. So it's been a touchy subject for the government. And I think, you know, that explains why they've gone to something quite minimal and, and they haven't sort of tried to make it a big part of their political agenda. They've sort of done the bare minimum, but done the bare minimum to respond to critics, but don't want to, to make it a flagship issue because ultimately they're worried about um, kind of accusations of inappropriate advertising kind of coming back to haunt them. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, it's, it's a little bit like party funding uh, in the UK. It, it's difficult to, to do much uh, substantive in this, uh, in this area without being some form of cross-party uh, consensus in how to reform the system. Uh, and until we reach that point, uh, it's unlikely to see radical, radical reform that would target uh, political advertising in this way. So Jack, let's move back to, to, to the European scene here. Um, it's not just political advertising that's in the, uh, in the line of fire, is it, for uh, legislators in Brussels? Um, some MEPs want to ban all targeted advertising, not just political advertising. Can you just tell us, where's this got to? Is this something that we're likely to see? I think the short answer on this is no. But there will be some steps in, in that direction. Uh, it's worth noting, it's not just MEPs who are calling for this. There's even the, the European Data Protection Board also published reports quite recently um, advocating the phasing out of, of targeted advertising and sort of the tracking and the surveillance capitalism uh, that goes with it. Um, the, the difficulty that MEPs run into with this kind of question is what do you do within the scope of the legislation you have in front of you? Um, because, of course, GDPR is the 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 piece of legislation that's um that that uh, deals with kind of how data is handled even if others then 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 kind of specify later as, as kind of lex specialis so so various ideas have been floated in the digital services act and in the digital markets act um this kind of twin flagship proposals from the commission um about what to do so in the digital markets act they're looking more at the kind of question of what um the big tech companies can do uh, in terms of combining data from different services and, and using that to target people. Um, they also settled on um, a kind of prohibition on targeting children. Um, and the DSA, they seem recently, in, in fact, as recently as yesterday, MEPs seem to have agreed as well um, that children shouldn't be targeted. Um, and that consent should be required to opt. You should, get, you, should, you should have to opt in to targeted advertising rather than having to opt out um similar to kind of gdpr data processing but all this is well short of an outright ban okay so so we we are we are seeing some some measures uh and perhaps in the sort of way of things in brussels that you in the first bite of the cherry in the first piece of legislation you have steps towards it possibly a review clause four or five years time when the digital services or digital markets acts are, uh, are reviewed, you may see something more radical and more substantial. Uh, only time will tell. So, I mean, you, you've listed one side of the ledger here, Jack. So obviously MEPs in the European Parliament are very keen for there to be measures on targeted advertising. Our national governments in the council, the other co-legislator, are they as keen? Would they support the measures you've just listed? 
Well, this is rather hard to say because, of course, there's a large amount of pushback on this kind of idea. Um, and I think we've already seen that in, in how MEPs have had to water down their own their own demands. Um, somewhat ironically, anyone working in policy in Brussels will have seen targeted social media adverts from big tech companies making the case that small businesses need to um, use, or this is kind of the, the lifeblood of small businesses, is being able to to, to use target advertising via these, these proposals. Um, and this is the kind of concern that will gain traction in, in the council, I think. Um, but, but of the various different um, of the various different proposals that we see, I think transparency, the transparency measures here in the, com in the com commission's proposal will survive. Consent harder to sort of MEPs demands for consent to this kind of opt-in to digital advertising. Targeted advertising is harder to say. They borrowed a GDPR-like language to make it more palatable to member states. Um, but this kind of proposal is usually very closely scrutinized by member states or the, the presidency. And will, I mean, will uh, be, be shot down if there's even the slightest inconsistency. But I think the, the ban on targeting minors is, is a bit more interesting because um, basically we see a coordinated push across both the DMA and DSA. So kind of a suggestion that the that MPs would want to get the member states to enter into some kind of grand bargain across the two files, um, and sort of a, a coordinated approach in, in that sense. And opposing these kind of child safety or child welfare online type uh, issues is not usually a good look. Um, so it would put member states, the council in quite a difficult position in, in negotiations if they want to kind of oppose that. Um, but ultimately, yes, yeah, so it all does hinge on the council and they've already been spinning their, uh, their, the agreements they've got as quite fragile, which we can see as them posturing ahead of trilogues with, with the MEPs. Okay, so we'll, we'll probably see less ambition than what MEPs have laid out, but there's a couple of clear areas where that can uh, where we might see agreement between the two legislators. I think the child, child protection issues are quite interesting, particularly when we think about the pressure that governments across Europe have applied onto companies like Facebook for encrypting uh, some of their messaging services, which they accuse uh, those companies of uh, facilitating certain forms of uh, child sexual abuse material. Therefore, to sort of uh, reverse their position in areas like this might appear a little inconsistent. Um, Max, just to conclude on, on this uh, part of our discussion, uh, I'm struck as we talk about this that um, it, it seems slightly somewhat divorced from what's happening more broadly in the tech sector. Uh, we know that Apple has made a number of changes to user tracking that have had a major impact on, on the sector. Is what we're talking about here today just a Bit of a sideshow. So before I ask, answer your question, it might be useful to just give a, a, a quick explainer on the, the Apple changes that you mentioned just for, for our listeners. Um, so earlier this year, Apple essentially announced, um, and they framed it as a kind of pro-privacy measure, that they would now be requiring uh, third-party apps on your iPhone to ask for your permission before they track you uh, across the iPhone. So kind of previously, you know, your Facebook app, for example, could track what you're doing, not only on Facebook, but on other apps, uh, and then use that data to basically target advertising at you. So Apple now requires, as, as I'm sure many people have seen, uh, you to basically say yes or no. And you know what's happened so far, unsurprisingly, is most people have said no to that sort of tracking. Uh, and that has had a kind of direct impact on the advertising revenues of companies like Facebook and Snapchat, who very much kind of rely on personal advertising, 
and um, and this is where I think you know, in addition to the privacy justifications, there's also commercial logic here for Apple. You know, Apple's advertising business has has benefited since this change. So that's the background. And I mean, in terms of whether this makes the kind of political advertising uh, kind of proposals irrelevant, I would say, I think to an extent that's true in the sense that, um, again, these changes have already had a kind of direct impact on personal personalized tracking and made it more difficult for companies other than uh, Apple to do. But, but on, the other, on the other hand, it hasn't killed personalized advertising. Um, you know, iOS isn't the only platform out there. You've got Android, you've got computers. Uh, and, you know, not everyone, basically some people will be consenting to, to being tracked still, even if just the minority. So I think that makes these kind of measures still relevant. Um, you know, it, actually Apple now having a kind of bigger role, bigger control in advertising ecosystem may make them a more interesting place. Uh, to place political ads on, at least in future. Um, so I think that's another thing to think about. Um, and then I think sort of lastly, I think it's important to also make a distinction between kind of personalized advertising and political advertising. While they are often uh, one and the same, not all political ads need to necessarily be personalized. You can have, for example, contextual advertising, where if you're looking at a page that's kind of relevant to your interest, someone can place a political ad that's kind of connected to the subject matter of what you're looking at without targeting you specifically. Um, and so these transparency measures that we've been talking about in the EU and the, the UK would still still apply to those and help in that sense. Um, so, yeah. Great. Well, look, thanks both on that. Um, let's move on to our, um, our next topic, which is the Web Summit. The Web Summit, for those uh, who are uninitiated uh, with it, is the premier tech conference in Europe uh, that takes place in Lisbon. It attracts the great and the good from across Europe's tech scene. It attracts some of the big beasts from the other side of the Atlantic, executives from uh, major players such as Microsoft, Apple, and so on and so forth. It also uh, is appealing to policymakers in Brussels. So you regularly see commissioners uh, and national ministers speaking at the conference. So it's become over the years, it was originally in Dublin, now is in Lisbon, but it has become a major feature of the tech calendar uh, in Europe. Last year, for obvious reasons, uh, it didn't happen in person, um, but this year it took place in early November. Um, and we just wanna spend a few minutes just assessing both the experience of the Web Summit, what it was like, um, was it a success? Is in-person conferences back? But also just to understand what is the actual purpose and value of the conference? Does it serve a wider purpose in political and policy and technology discourse across Europe? So Jack, you were one of the 40,000 odd people packed into the Web Summit at Lisbon. To what I've just said, can you just give your listeners a little bit of a sense of whether you think it was a success is it now back and do you think that in-person conferences uh, in the tech sector both in europe us and elsewhere are going to return throughout the course of next year and be a feature of our calendars i think the short answer is absolutely a success um, especially given the circumstances i mean the organizers were very keen to stress um, to everyone and tell everyone how they were expecting at one point this year maybe 10,000 people maximum so to have hit 40,000 um, just on pure numbers alone uh, is an unqualified success for sure um, 
as to whether it's back, that's, that's, uh, that's I mean, this is a very um, contextual question. I think there was a very short window of opportunity to hold it. Um, and I'm sure the Portuguese, the Portuguese government will be quick to highlight the facts um, that the high vaccination rates, et cetera, et cetera, in Portugal, in Lisbon specifically, were a great help in making that possible. Um, I think what one one takeaway is that there is clearly a huge appetite still for in-person events in the tech sector, and I think that's very important when when you consider the the purpose and the kind of um, sort of added value, if you can put it that way, of the web summits in in this kind of uh, matching matchmaking function it plays between. Uh, European tech, your startups, European startups and tech company founders with investors um, and other other kind of sort of service providers for them, like governments trying to you know attract them to 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 move to their countries. Um, this kind of in person thing, I think, is is, uh, is is still pretty essential, despite all the advances in remote working and networking that we've that we've seen over the past uh, eighteen months or so. Um, so I, I think we can only conclude that um, events like the web summit, probably also things like mobile world congress and so on are not yet going to be replaced by the metaverse so uh it in that sense it was a it was a success i mean i i personally was struck by just the optimism of the conference now i don't know if that is just generally the the vibe of of the web summit but it was also I think a certain amount of glee uh, from attendees that they were able to attend and socialize and network and listen to a array an array of uh, of class speakers. Um, the the question there though leads to Jack. I mean, is that sense of optimism that was projected about European tech is that genuine or is that sort of almost trying to create success? by telling everyone that it is a success? Is, is there something that underlies? Are there foundations to European tech that perhaps there weren't there five years ago? Well, I think clearly with an event like this, Bluster is the name of the game. Um, it exists to big up European tech and is more of a success when it does. Um, but there, they have good reasons to. Um, and you really do come away that uh, with, with the with the impression that there was kind of good times for European tech. I mean, because what you can do at the web summits um, is talk to a lot of people who are working in tech companies. You spend, it's very normal to sit down at lunchtime and and start talking to the person next to you who's, who's uh, you know, founder, CEO of whichever relatively small European tech company and ask them how it's going, what the general impression is. And all of them, um, all, at least all the ones that I spoke to would talk about how easy it is to get funding um, to the extent that if you're not able to get funding for your new European startup tech company, um, then you're doing something very wrong, um, which is quite telling. And then there's this general sense then that this kind of rising tide lifts all boats and is good for everyone. Um, the conclusion that policymakers might draw from that and that you know the sort of observers would say is that, um, okay, this, this money is typically coming from the US this is not European generated money, it's coming from outside and all the kind of classic uh, weaknesses of the kind of European business environments for small companies um, continue to uh, sort of hamper, hamper the prospects of European companies, which, which makes this the kind of the moment for European policymakers to try and kind of capitalize on this because there's much more 
um, the, kind of the, the kind of sustainability of a uh, of, of the tech sector is in if we see all the kind of the efficiency of the ecosystem that you see in somewhere like Silicon Valley that develops over time through the experience of sort of growing companies selling them moving on and having the next generation. Um, so now it's kind of Europe needs to take the chance that's kind of uh, presented by this particular context and 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 do that. And that there's also some fear that this is also a bit of a bubble. There's lots of overvalued companies, um, and that perhaps the, the window for taking advantage of these of this situation will will at some point close. So, in short, there are certain grounds for optimism, and perhaps the uh, the availability of financing is perhaps the key difference with perhaps five, ten years ago. However, uh, it's not clear whether some of the other structural problems with Europe's tech scene have been resolved in, in, in previous years. The interesting element, Max, and if I could turn to you on this, is that in some sense, Jack's talked a lot about the European tech scene, and so have I just now. But actually, what the Web Summit talks to a little bit is actually a patchwork of tech scenes within Europe and rival centres, say Dublin, Amsterdam, Berlin, London, Stockholm, and obviously Lisbon. Um, while we were there, there was an announcement that Lisbon would become the host of the European Startup Nations Alliance, which was launched with great fanfare by the Portuguese government, who clearly see this as one plank in a policy to attract startups to base in Lisbon. They're interested in Portuguese tech and Lisbon tech, but not necessarily more widely European tech. Um, which takes us to the, the question that um, one of the benefits of Brexit was supposed to be that the UK would be able to chart a different course in a number of policy areas, but an obvious one for that was tech policy, and therefore maintain and promote the UK and London in particular as one of the leading tech hubs. Do you think that in the context of what's happening in Lisbon and elsewhere, that what the UK government has done with digital policy post-Brexit has facilitated that? So I think, I think firstly, just talking about London as a city, you know, it's worth making the point that London is already one of the kind of great tech centers, uh, certainly in Europe, but, but, but also in the world. Um, you know, when you're looking at kind of hard measures like uh, venture capital investment, uh, number of unicorns or, or skill talent, uh, you know, London already kind of performs very strongly in that sense, kind of concerns around post-Brexit competitiveness uh, aside. Um, but when we're looking more at kind of what the government's doing, I would say uh, it's a little bit of a mixed picture. So I think certainly when it comes to uh, kind of rhetoric from the government, um, you know, making sort of focusing on, on the UK as a tech hub, uh, as a kind of digital policy pioneer, uh, that's certainly very prominent. Um, you know, the, the kind of DCMS, the digital department, uh, the business department, Bayes, uh, but also the prime minister and number 10 talk a lot about uh, kind of the innovation first approach about kind of attracting global talent to the UK through a more flexible visa regime, uh, through attracting foreign investment. You know, the, the government just held a, a big kind of investment summit uh, a couple of months ago with leading investors and businesses. Um, and there's this goal of, of, which the government again talks about a lot around being a, a science and technology superpower. So again, sort of the aspiration is there, but I think when you're looking at the substance, uh, it leaves a little bit more to, to be desired. Um, so looking at kind of key parts of the government's policy agenda on, on digital and on innovation. So things like the AI strategy and the innovation strategy, which were, which were both published this year. 
Um, you know, they're very high, high level documents. Uh, they're not, there isn't a huge commitment, at least so far, in terms of new government funding for things like AI innovation or kind of critical technologies. Uh, there isn't much in the way of kind of concrete reform. So, um, you know, that may turn out to be different. These are just strategies and, and there's kind of more to come. Um, but so far we haven't seen that much. Um, an area where things are a little bit more concrete are around data protection. So uh, the government has, has sort of recently concluded a consultation uh, on how the UK's kind of data protection regime, which is currently based in, still based in the GDPR, can be uh, reformed to make the UK kind of more competitive and more innovative. Um, but, but even there, there's sort of quite hard limits on, on how much the UK can do, given uh, the need to maintain data adequacy with the EU, which is essentially uh, allows data to flow freely between the EU and, and the UK, and, and where if the UK actually kind of moved too far away from the GDPR, uh, the European Commission could essentially kind of annul that agreement. So, so that so there's kind of this limit there. Um, I'd say where you know where we've seen kind of the most tangible commitments are on the, the sort of R and D funding side. Um, so the government created a new uh, agency based on DARPA in the in the US called ARIA. Uh, which is kind of still in the process of being set up, which will fund kind of uh, high risk sort of uh, moonshot innovation in, in, in strategic technologies. We'll have to wait and see how that pays off, but it's clearly a kind of uh, sign of ambition. Um, and also the government has committed just generally to kind of increasing the share of, of R&D funding uh, in the economy. Um, but, but actually even there, they kind of recently in the, in the uh, government budget actually uh, watered down their target by kind of extending the timeline within which they, they hope to achieve it. Um, and then I think there are also elements of the government agenda which which kind of contradict this this desire to, to focus on innovation and making the UK a tech hub. So you've got, for example, the, the online safety bill, which in kind of broad terms you can see is a, a kind of similar to the EU's Digital Services Act, uh, which kind of sets new obligations for uh, social media platforms, kind of tech platforms on how they deal with illegal and harmful content, and which will certainly increase the regulatory burden for a lot of companies in the tech sector. Uh, you've got the Digital Markets Unit, which we'll talk about a bit later, but which is uh, a bit like the Digital Markets Act. It kind of creates new rules for big tech platforms to, to reduce their market power, in which you know the CMA might tell you is about promoting innovation, but ultimately, again, does increase regulation. Uh, and then you've got you know the National Security and Investment Act, which is all about kind of tightening up the rules for foreign investment into the UK, particularly in sensitive sectors like tech. So I think you've got these other areas which many people see as potentially being damaging to innovation and to the UK's attractiveness to the tech sector. So um, yeah, as I said, kind of a mixed picture. So in some sense, uh, the UK is post-Brexit is trying to compete with other European tech hubs in attracting startups, venture capital. What uh, policymakers might see as the more innovative elements of the the tech sector, but is sharing a common approach, if maybe not on the details, but at least in the regulatory thrust, in being quite tough on larger tech platforms, and isn't looking to uh, to vie with, say, Dublin or maybe Amsterdam in trying to attract some of the bigger U.S. tech platforms uh, to London. Jack, let's just uh, just to wrap up um, on this section, um, let's go back to Lisbon. Um, we've talked about what the text, what the Web Summit is for, um, how investors and startups are able to use it, the sense of optimism that comes with that. Let's get back to our bread and butter, though. Did politics and tech policy feature much, if at all, at the Web Summit? 
Well, very much so. Um, I mean, there's been a history of European politicians using it for kind of set piece announcements, speeches, defending, you know, defending or promoting their their upcoming proposals. Um, there's, I mean, if you if, if you go there, if you're there this year, you'd have seen certainly uh, the footage of Margrethe Vestager uh, talking on stage. I think it was a couple of years ago, um, and in fact, they have a they have a, like a, a whole side stage dedicated to kind of the society's future society's questions which is all about policy regulation and and, and so on um this year uh vera yorova was there um to promote the political ads proposal as well as you know flag kind of uh flag what they what they'd already done on the dsa and, and the dma um you also found and, and that was on the main stage and on, on these kind of side stages there was as i say this one dedicated to future societies but also even on the developer stage we saw um the proton proton mail ceo andy yen so proton mail if you don't know it it's a um a sort of email email and internet service uh, internet uh not internet service provider a kind of provider of uh service like vpn email and so on um he was there to to make the case for more competition and and online as a kind of fix for online privacy, linking this to the Digital Markets Act, um, which I thought was interesting to see this presented to um, a, a, um, an audience of, of kind of developers. Uh, but most strikingly, and again related to the, to the DSA, and I would say slightly surreal, um, was how Apple sent Craig Federighi, who is in charge of that, he's a senior I'm going to get his title wrong, but senior vice president, um, extremely high level executive in charge of software at Apple. Um, they sent him there to make a very specific point about the DMA, um, namely on the side loading obligation, which is how uh, how you install apps. You know, do you have to do it via official app store, or can you do it via kind of a, a different, you know, um, a sort of third party app store in your in your iPhone? And he, he was there. He made a very slick presentation arguing that. This um, that such an obligation would undermine security on iPhones. Um, to which the critics would say, "Well, what about on Mac OS? That's a completely different story, different, perhaps a different conversation." Um, but in the room, it was it was it was very very odd because it was, it was in this huge arena, filled with people, very sort of partisan towards Apple and the, the products and that that way of the way of thinking. Um, with kind of pyrotechnics, light show, logos all over it. And then the, the MC comes out and says, we're going to talk about DMA, which is a very, you know, is normally at home in the kind of relatively uh, airless conference rooms in Brussels. So that was interesting, um, interesting juxtaposition, but it made headlines. And that, of course, was ultimately his, his or Apple's goal. Um, so very effective, very good platform for them to use. Um, and that they send someone that senior to make that point, that specific point, also shows how how important the DMA is to to Apple. So good to see uh, politics and policy breaking out of the dusty rooms of Brussels into the the razzmatazz of a web summit at Lisbon. But there's a, there's a serious point there underneath it that if you are a a business. Uh, or another organization that is thinking through whether you might attend the Web Summit, uh, whether you might participate in, in, a, in a more uh, comprehensive way. It's clearly a platform now where uh, companies and politicians go to drive headlines 
um, in order to influence the policy environment in Brussels, most obviously, but also in national capitals around Europe. So it's, it's developed this additional purpose over the years. So I think that's quite a good uh, moment for us just to move on to our final section. I mean, we've talked a lot about the DMA, the Digital Markets Act throughout this podcast so far. It is quite dry and, to be frank, quite boring sounding for, I imagine, for many of our listeners. The acronym, the name does not bring much excitement to it. But I think Jack just alluded to there are some very practical implications here, not just for companies, but for us as users of all these products and services. So let's jump into this and let's try and draw out for everyone listening about not just the policy detail here, but why it might matter in the future uh, to the experience we all have. So Max, let's start. Can you just explain the nuts and the bolts of what the DMA is all about? And just to put this question to you, because this is what everyone's talked about in competition policy with regards to digital markets in recent years, is it about breaking up big tech companies? There's something that I've devoted quite a few hours of my recent existence to. I'm quite quite hurt that you called the DMA boring, Conan. Um, but I will uh, do, do my best now to, to explain why I find it so exciting to, to our listeners. Um, so, I mean, I mean, so the DMA, as we've discussed already, is a, a, a proposal from the European Commission came out. Uh, last December, and it's now going through the kind of quite long-winded uh, legislative proposal uh, process in Brussels involving uh, the, the, the Council and the Parliament. Um, but in terms of your question about whether this is about breaking up big tech, not exactly. I would say it's more about kind of challenging or reining in uh, the market power of, of big tech platforms, which uh, in the kind of commissions parlance uh, are known as gatekeepers, uh, meaning they kind of exert significant market power over businesses and users, particularly as a kind of, well, yeah, a gateway between between the two. Um, and so what the DMA kind of proposal does to try and rectify that is, is set out a list of do's and don'ts for, for platforms that are designated as gatekeepers to try and kind of uh, minimize those those negative effects on, on competition. Um, and so those, those do's and don'ts include things like uh, you know, how, how, so how platforms interact with their business customers when it comes to things like collecting uh, and, use, and analyzing their data, particularly when it comes to the issue of using data from their customers to then compete against them, as we've seen uh, has been an issue with platforms like Amazon, uh, includes things like sort of putting limitations on their ability to self-preference their own products and services over those of kind of competing businesses and apps on their platforms. Uh, it sort of tries to make it easier for those business customers to um, sort of promote offers and, and, and sell, sell things outside of the kind of gatekeeper channels like, like the App Store or the Google Play Store. Uh, and it has provisions as well on things like interoperability. So making it easier for these sort of third party services to kind of link their, their, own, um, their own tech kind of seamlessly up with, with the tech offered by, by big companies like Apple and Google. Um, so that's sort of the, the core of the, propo the, the proposal, these sorts of obligations. Um, in terms of how the DMA would kind of designate gatekeepers, so it sets out a series of uh, criteria that would essentially determine whether you are or are not a gatekeeper. I won't get into a huge amount of detail, but those include things like certain services, which are called core platform services, which, which are you kind of need to fulfill at least one of them to uh, it, and, and actually offer it in three member states to be a gatekeeper. So that includes things like app stores, um, cloud services, social media, and so on. 
Um, and then there are also, and these have been quite contentious in, in, in the parliament, but a set of quantitative criteria um, or, or, or thresholds which, which determine gatekeeper status. So that's things like uh, your annual turnover in the, in the single market, uh, your kind of global market capitalization, uh, and the number of business and, and end users that you have. Um, so that's sort of the DMA in a nutshell. Um, as for kind of why the commission has done this, I think oh, the, the main way to see it is, is, a, is a response to the widespread perception that kind of traditional uh, competition policy tools haven't been adequate in uh, kind of reigning in big tech. So I'm talking about the kind of antitrust investigations that we've seen uh, the commission launch over the years against Google and Apple and others, um, which you know typically they take a long time. Uh, that's subject to appeal by the companies themselves and which can drag on for many years, uh, as we saw recently with the Google Google shopping case. Um, and, you know, they, they typically only allow uh, the kind of commission to, to, to focus on one particular market and one particular service and issues around there. Um, whereas the DMA would kind of, as I mentioned, sort of apply sweeping obligations to essentially sort of most of a gatekeeper's business. So it's, it's more encompassing, all encompassing uh, and meant to be more uh, agile. And um, I think just on the, on the breakups points, as I said, this is not kind of the focus of the proposal, but there is, there is some, there is some, are some measures in the proposal around forced separation, uh, which the commission could potentially use if a gatekeeper is kind of not complying with the obligations that I mentioned. Um, kind of repeatedly non-compliant that, that that is an option but i think you know in practice it would be a difficult thing to do because as we know most of these kind of gatekeeper big tech platforms are, are based in the us and so seeing how a kind of european regulatory body would break them up purely in europe uh, is hard to see so in some sense this is the european commission recognizing that certain digital markets lend themselves to monopoly like or duopoly type practices and scenarios which allows the potential for of overly dominant practices by certain companies which may affect other apps other internet service providers and other companies who are looking uh, to sell online so i suppose what we're talking about is here really some of the bigger tech platforms um as you said google apple amazon and others are the the most obvious ones that jump to mind and that have been the most controversial in debates which have been associated uh, with the Digital Markets Act. And on breaking up big tech, it's possible, but it's you know not necessarily front of mind in all the list of measures that, that might be applied. I think more fundamentally as well is that we're starting to see a bit of a shift in the minds of policymakers and regulators about how we think about some of these companies. 20 years ago, Google was, or Apple or Amazon, they were seen as innovators providing new, creating new markets, creating new services, and uh, finding a whole host of new users who would use their services. Now, they are starting clearly to be seen a little bit more like utilities, uh, most obviously where we see measures like Max just described be applied in other sectors would be something like telecoms, where companies like BT, Deutsche Telekom, Orange, and others are subject to a whole range of uh, requirements to ensure that competition is preserved, but they are applied before problems in competition emerge rather than afterwards. So there's a bit of borrowing here from what we've seen in other sectors. So putting that to one side, Max, I think if we're putting our, put our sort of ourselves in the minds of an MEP, all of this, or indeed a national government official, all of this sounds quite agreeable. 
most people I, I imagine in the European Parliament would be supportive of what you've just laid out. So, I mean, uh, why is this so political? I mean, what, why are we seeing ongoing ferocious public debates, even between companies like Apple and Spotify? What is, what, what is going on here? So I think, as you say, um, you know, there, there is a lot of support for it, uh, both in the parliament and in the council. And, it, and you know, the DMA has moved kind of relatively quickly uh, through the legislative process for that reason. Um, so I think ultimately the politics comes from, as you alluded to, uh, you know, which companies fall on kind of which side of that gatekeeper designation and the, the way that that would com affect them commercially. Um, so, you know, with companies like Apple and Google, who are pretty much guaranteed to be designated as gatekeepers under the new proposal, uh, they, for kind of obvious reasons, therefore, have quite strongly opposed it or at least tried to, to water it down, um, because for them, it means, you know, a higher regulatory burden, uh, you know, potentially because of that kind of lower profit margins and, and more competition from challenger platforms that are able to, to benefit from uh, the provisions in, in the DMA, whereas you've kind of got on the on the other side of the ring, uh, companies like Spotify or uh, Match Group who own Tinder or uh, Games, these are apps that um, kind of rely heavily on the, the app stores and the kind of platforms provided by uh, big tech and which you know, feel that they ultimately ha have been um, kind of disadvantaged by this in terms of the cost they pay for featuring on those app stores or the kind of terms and conditions that they, they, they have to comply with. And they feel that ultimately that that is because of the kind of market power uh, imposed on them by those large platforms. So I think that, you know, division to, or that kind of divide explains to, to a large extent the politics behind the proposal. Um, I think there's also a question of kind of American versus European companies. Uh, which was a big factor in the kind of uh, discussions in the European Parliament around uh, the proposal and, and how it should be amended. So the Parliament, the Parliament ultimately uh, ended up in its kind of uh, position on the on the DMA, which just voted on earlier this week, raising those thresholds I talked about earlier in terms of turnover and market capitalization, um, which would essentially kind of focus on an even narrower group of, of mainly American uh, tech companies. Uh, and, and kind of distance some of these some some European companies who um, could otherwise or would otherwise have been at risk of being designated as as gatekeepers. So there's a kind of nationality element here. And then I think lastly, um, you know, there's a question of political perception for companies. Ultimately, uh, as you kind of alluded to, Conan, every tech company wants to be perceived as an innovator or a disruptor, and not as an incumbent utility. Um, and so I think that explains why sort of big tech have really been kind of fighting this because being designated as, as a gatekeeper kind of would, would attach that stigma to them. Okay, and just very quickly then, just um, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but what do, we, what do we think of the practical implications for users here? I mean, could we see cheaper, cheaper services online? Could we see multiple? What's the practical implication? Sure. So, well, I mean, it depends to an extent how, how effective the DMA is in achieving its goals and, and being implemented, but sort of assuming, uh, you know, that all takes place pretty seamlessly. I think there are a number of ways that you know, consumers could, could benefit from, from the DMA's proposals. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, the, the obligations in there around requiring gatekeepers to make it easy for, for apps to 
promote kind of offers outside of the gatekeeper services and to use things like to offer third-party payment solutions could ultimately mean cheaper apps and kind of in-app purchases for people uh, and can kind of you know reduce some of the fees that um, uh, Apple and Google have gotten quite a lot of criticism for for charging app developers which again are ultimately passed on to consumers um, linked to that it could make it, it could mean it will be easier in future to download kind of third-party app stores other than the Apple or Google Play App Store uh, and just to use kind of alternatives to the default apps that you typically find you know when you buy your phone and take it out of the box um, and you know this will be technically difficult to implement but you could see also more interoperability between different types of services so for example on messaging uh, there may be requirements to make it possible to send a message from whatsapp to imessage or from telegram to, to whatsapp um, so i think those those are a couple of areas where i think you know consumers and users could see kind of real changes in in how they use technology well, I mean, so it could actually be uh, far more interesting and uh, and applicable to our everyday usage of of uh, internet services than perhaps uh, we are led to believe if we uh, some of the drier analysis out there. So, Jack, let's just um, one final question on this because we've 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 gone around uh, the houses on it. What is still up for grabs in the negotiation? So we have the. The parliament has its position the council has its position um given there seems to be a fair level of consensus about what to do what are those sort of handful of issues that are still a bit crunchy that we expect to be uh, the focus of negotiations early next year uh, before we get the final legislative text well the question is still kind of who as in you know which companies will ultimately be designated as gatekeepers because the, the European Parliament we've seen has raised the sort of quantitative thresholds of things like turnover market capitalization um, which obviously means then fewer companies and obviously then more American companies are caught by uh, the, the, the definition of a gatekeeper and also raises the bar for kind of fast-growing European companies like uh, the Zalandos of this world and before they become gatekeepers too. So that's the first thing. The, the council stuck much closer to the commissions or stuck with the exact figures um, put forward by the commission. So the definition of a gatekeeper. There's also the question actually within that is the calculation of an active user, which sounds very niche, um, but is also quite critical and that is a user and, and shows actually interesting differences in business models because is an active user on Facebook someone who just sees an ad on Facebook versus someone who just, you know, on, on an e-commerce platform, someone who just looks at an e-commerce platform is obviously not very lucrative to that platform they need to buy something um so quite who you know how you calculate this is still another question that is, is um has been vexing the council and will surely also plague the the trilogues um and then there's then there's after that there's the rest of it you know what what counts as a core service um what are the precise obligations prohibitions because lists like this in eu legislation always risk becoming kind of christmas trees where you try and hang on every every extra kind of idea that you would like to have um but no so the definition of a gatekeeper what is an active user um and then yeah which precise services i think will be the the main areas at its heart there is still that sort of tension that comes back in every conversation we we tend to have on these issues around the nationality of tech companies that that concern around us tech so where that threshold is set so which companies are regulated in this way uh, is important because you set it at a certain level it may end up only being 
large US companies, which may provoke the US administration into complaining about the legislation being discriminatory against uh, US companies. So there's that geopolitical backdrop that we're looking at here. Likewise, a lot of European policymakers are unwilling to apply uh, major regulatory uh, obligations onto their own European tech champions, um, where we know Europe has not been as successful as the US and China uh, in building up big software companies. Well, look, thanks. Thanks, Max. And thanks, uh, Jack. Um, I hope listeners found that uh, that discussion across the three areas uh, interesting and insightful. Let's just quickly move across to the forward look. So the top four elements that we would think should be on your radar ahead of Christmas uh, in tech policy world. The first, I can't put a date on it, would be the vote on the Digital Services Act in the European Parliament. The reason why um, it is penciled in uh, for December in the Internal Market Committee in the European Parliament. But we know that negotiations between MEPs are ongoing. So there is a prospect that the legislation, the vote on it, could slip yet again uh, into January, which would have implications for the broader timetable. The next one to bring to your attention is just coming up in a week or so's time, which is the Telecoms Council, the 2nd to 3rd December. This is where telecoms ministers from across the EU will uh, come together. The big issues on the digital agenda there is both the AI and the digital identity proposals. They've been somewhat overshadowed by the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, but we'll see a progress report there on where things are getting to in discussions between EU member states on those two issues. The third one to flag for those who follow the gig economy closely is the Platform Workers Directive, which we uh, understand is scheduled to be published on the 8th of December. This is expected to try and introduce a range of protections for workers who operate on platforms such as ride hailers, Uber, Bolt and others and delivery services that we're all familiar with. The final one to bring to your attention, number four, is on the 10th of December, on the other side of the channel, the Joint Committee on the Online Safety Bill, which we talked about a lot on our last podcast, is going to publish its report and recommendations on how the government should amend its draft bill, which, uh, like the EU's Digital Services Act, is targeted at regulating primarily social media, but a range of other companies, uh, particularly around how they moderate harmful content and illegal content online. So those recommendations are likely to feed into the thinking of the UK government on this important legislation, which is now scheduled to be tabled in Parliament in March next year. So as always, to quickly conclude, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to any of the issues that Max and Jack have talked through today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can find our details um, and for the wider GC team at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for listening and look forward to uh, joining the next podcast in a month's time. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.